Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. Well, I've had a couple of weeks on the road and I'm delighted now to be back in the studio recording wonderful episodes with wonderful guests. You do not want to miss this episode. I am with the wonderful Howard Tierski, who is the CEO from the Digital Transformation Agency and also an author, an author of a book that is going to be the focus of our conversation because this is about winning digital customers the antidote to irrelevance. So many people talk to us about how do we avoid irrelevance in a digital age? Well, you know how this works. I have to talk to someone far wiser than myself. So come back to me just after this. During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Well, there you go. It's a big warm welcome to you, Howard. Howard Tierski, how are you, my friend? Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. I'm excited. Yeah, no, I've been excited to have you on the episode. Uh, and it's also exciting to have you because you have an amazing book that we're really going to oh, kind of zone you. into as well. And I know that's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And Forbes have had it in their top 10 business books as well. So uh, as another author, haven't quite had those accolades, Howard, but that's pretty well done, my friend. Pretty well done. Oh, thank you. So tell us a little bit about you, because there's always a wonderful story and a journey to all of my guests before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this episode. Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, I, I run a digital agency. I've been working for about 25 years, really, in the same basic goal, towards the same basic goal, just working with large enterprises on how they can win in this ever-changing digital world. And uh, I live uh, just outside New York City in, in Mawa, New Jersey, and I have uh, five kids and a really big fish tank. <laughs> what else would you like to know? <laughs> now, I remember when we talked about five kids, you actually said there's a lot going on in the house. So <laughs> how do you actually balance that as well? There's a lot going on at home. There's obviously been a lot going on uh, in your, your professional life as well. I'm just intrigued because, it, you know, I, I was abroad working with some leaders recently. And we were talking about that work-life balance. So I know I'm off on a tangent already, but how do you actually balance all of that nowadays? Well, first of all, you know, you get a, you get used to uh, the, the chaos of living in a house with so many people and with five kids. And actually now two of my kids no longer live here because uh, one is in college and one is in a year between high school and college uh, taking a year abroad. So I only have three living at home now and it's so quiet, you know, with only three. So it just goes to show you acclimate to, uh, to a certain level of, uh, of commotion. And at some point they all come home, Howard. Uh, that's what I've been told, certainly. So we're you're hoping, we're hoping. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, you didn't always work in this field, did you? Because I'm interested, you actually worked in theater. Yes, my original career trajectory was as a theater director. I had training as a theater director and worked professionally as a theater director oh so many years ago. Um, and uh, But as... Um, the internet was born, and even in a couple of years before that, as interactive entertainment became uh, something that was possible in many ways with even things like kiosks and CD-ROMs and that sort of era, I became really fascinated by that method of interacting with an audience as well. I uh, still love theater, but uh, over the years, there's been a lot more work in the uh, digital 
interactive digital realm than there is in the interactive live realm. So that's where most of my focus has been. Was there something particular that kind of spiked your interest? You know, I think about, you know, me growing up from, do you remember the old, the Apple Walkman and then, and then the first little iPods that came out? And, you know, I try and think about what was it that really resonated with me as I was growing up in relation to digital? Was there something that really piqued your interest? Well, you know, I love the idea of creating media that can respond to people. It's some so obvious now as we everyone sits there on their phones and spends all day consuming interactive media. But yeah. back, you know, in the era that I grew up, you know, you bought a book, uh, you you maybe bought a videotape and watched a movie. You know, yeah. the interactivity was forward and rewind. You didn't really have a lot of TV, you watched linear TV. You couldn't even, you know, pause it or, or there was no video on demand to speak of. So, you know, the idea of media was mostly, you know, you, you consume it, you can stop it and start it, but otherwise you're on someone else's roller coaster. And today, of course, if you think about things like Facebook and Twitter and the way we interact and we like, and we comment and, and, you know, the, the media is almost the, the default is for things to be interactive in many ways, but that wasn't so back then. And so that was, I think, one of the things I really loved about the theater, which is that even when you're telling a story, the audience is right there. You have a kind of immediacy that I, I really fell in love with. Um, but you can create not exactly the same kind of immediacy, but similar things when you start to create media that's meant and designed to respond to the user. Uh, whether that's just navigation or things that are more sophisticated. And now, of course, in the world of video games, for example, yeah. and in virtual reality, I mean, we, we have amazing technologies that allow us to do so many cool things. Well, I'm going to be talking to a, a wonderful lady, actually, whilst I'm in Orlando in May, about the metaverse and, and Web mm-hmm. 3.0. I, I say that as if I know what I'm talking about. But I, as I say, I'm, I'm hunting down someone much wiser than me that will help me with that. Personal question, because I've just done three live events for the first time, really, in almost two years. It's been wonderful from a leadership development perspective, to be back in the room with people, that human proximity. In mm-hmm. relation to digital transformation. Have you noticed anything? Has anything stood out from you in the last couple of years as you've navigated the pandemic or you've got used to a new way of working? Uh, has anything stood out as, as different, new, unique, or even a, a reflection that maybe you've had over the last couple of years? Oh, well, my God. I mean, the, the pandemic has had a massive impact on digital transformation. It has, as many people have observed, uh, acted as a huge accelerant to the types of trends that were already underway. Yeah. Uh, but we've gotten much farther faster. And just as a simple example, I mean, you know, before the pandemic, you know, we weren't ordering our, glo- we, you know, we, we weren't ordering our groceries through Instacart. We weren't conducting our doctor visits through Zoom. Yeah. My kids weren't being educated primarily through digital. Now, some of, of course, some of that has gone back. My kids, thank God, are no longer <laughs> being educated digitally. But but we, we were in a situation where there was this forcing function where all the sudden many of our more analog methods of interacting were taken away from us and so you know even people who used to like to go to the bank which i was not one i was already banking digitally but those people all of a sudden realized well that's cut off from me and so it pushed a lot of people more towards digital and it also caused companies to have to up their game in terms of the digital capabilities you know if you were a bank that wasn't already allowing people to do online account opening for example you still said oh well you could check your balance online but you still have to come to the branch to sign a bunch of papers right. all of a sudden with covid you know that became impractical so uh, so many initiatives at many companies were either accelerated or just had to be dreamed up and things that that companies had been resistant to uh, and hesitant to do and uncertain about moving more into digital all of a sudden became, you know, absolutely critical to, to survival. And of course the, the most 
sort of widespread one is work from home. We've seen, yeah, uh, you know, while there was of course already the ability for people to work from home using technology, many large companies were resisting it at, at scale. And then all of a sudden, practically overnight, they discovered that actually this works pretty good. <laughs> this is fine. And I think now, you know, as we're in this phase where hopefully we are, you know, moving out of the pandemic, yep. the multi-year pandemic that we've all been through. And so now it'll be interesting to see what remains and what goes back. Uh, as you say, you're back to doing some live events. So it's not like we're never going to do live events. events. We're back to traveling some. some. We are back to going to the movies sometimes. But most of those activities are at our lower than pre-pandemic levels right now. And it will be interesting to see over time whether the new level that sort of equal evens out will be back where it was. I think for many things, it's going to retrench a bit, but nowhere is near where it was before. So maybe some people who used to go to the bank and then switch to online banking are going to go back to going to the bank, yep. some, but many will stay where they were. They say, you know what? I've already done it for X period of time. I'm used to it now. My behavior has changed. My habit has changed. And so I think that um, that's why it's acted as an accelerant for digital transformation, not just during the COVID period, but it's going to continue that those trend lines are going to continue. In some ways, we've all individually and as organizations had to digitally transform, haven't we? we we've had no choice. It's gone from, a oh, I should do something to I must do something in, in order to just operate and perhaps even make a living, generate revenue. So that's right. One of the things I want to focus on is a word that I've I've heard before. It is part and parcel of your book, but a word that I hear senior leaders talk about sometimes through a lens of fear is they don't want to become irrelevant. And there was this wonderful quote: "It's not the big that will eat the small; it's the fast that will eat the slow." Tell me a little yeah. bit about your thoughts about businesses and how they should view irrelevance. Well, I think it starts by asking, you know, why why is business relevant? Yeah. Lots of businesses, you know, that you see statistics all the time that a huge portion of new businesses that are founded fail within the first couple of years. Uh -huh. And mostly, well, you know, why would a business fail? Well, you know, of course there are different reasons, but what's the number one reason a business would fail is they just don't matter enough to their customers. They can't find enough customers that want what they want, or they can't differentiate enough from their competitors, or uh, there's just not enough people are willing to pay for what they're offering. That's the number one reason. Yep. And uh, so businesses, the businesses that I work with, have usually enjoyed many years of being highly relevant. They're, they're established successful businesses. They have a track record. And so if you're already a business that has been highly relevant to customers, you've achieved something that many businesses never achieve. Okay. And then of course, typically scaled up. So that's fantastic. But here's the problem. Uh, you know, when you have a formula that makes you relevant to your customer, what happens if the customer changes? Right. Are you still relevant to the customer? You know, and the answer is it depends. It depends how the customer changes. But, and it depends how much the customer changes. If the customer just changes a teeny tiny bit, you know, probably it's okay. But as we were just discussing, the behavior and, and, and other factors, right? The psychology of so many people in our world today has shifted over the last two years at a trajectory and speed far different from normal times because yeah. we've all been through an extraordinary period and whatever you want to call it, a trauma or a, you know, a, a change oh, yeah, in our lifestyle. And so- that means customers have changed more than ever. And by the way, they were already changing with digital. If you think about even pre-pandemic, people's behaviors and how they use their phones and how, you know, there's lots of stats on your average person sleeps with their smartphone beside their bed and touches their phone over a hundred times Guilty. a day. And yeah, exactly. We, even before the pandemic, most people had, were living this lifestyle, which was heavily digitally centric. And that was fairly new. 
uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people had computers, but they weren't the center of their life, maybe the center of their work, depending on your job, but not the center of your life. And but today it's how we bank. It's how we date. It's how we look for information. It's how we socialize very often. It's how we play. It's where we get our entertainment. You know, for some people, it's, it's how they connect to religion. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine an aspect of life that isn't now centered around some kind of digital device. And so. That means if you look at that and say, well, it wasn't really that way 10 or 15 years ago, mm-hmm. it means that your customer has changed a lot. And those companies that are successful today are either those that were born into this digital era and therefore designed themselves for, so to speak, the customer of today, or like Google, Facebook, Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, yep. or their customers who have changed and transformed sufficiently so that what they're offering, their value proposition, aligns well for people who are living a digital lifestyle. Live digital lifestyle. Starbucks, FedEx, HBO, Walmart. Absolutely, we see many companies that are from a pre-digital era who successfully transformed, but we see many more who are still struggling with it. And that's essentially, well, that's what I do for a living, frankly, is help support that process. And that's what my book is about. Okay, and we're going to come to that. Now, you mentioned a, a number of companies there. Is there one that's a bit of a standout for you as an, an organization that was operating pre this digital era, but has adapted extremely well and has continued to thrive in a digital area? So they weren't a digital yeah. native, but who would you pick out for that and kind of why? Well, gosh, there are many, but let me pick Starbucks. Okay. You know, Starbucks is a business you wouldn't think of as being like ripe for digital transformation in the sense that, you know, it's a very, uh, it's about, it's a business about atoms, you know, it's not a, it's not a bank. It's not a travel company. You know, you have to go to the store, get your coffee. It's not the kind of thing you'd think of classically from an e-commerce perspective, because, yeah. you know, you're not going to go on the Amazon and buy yourself a, you know, a cappuccino, right? Maybe a cappuccino machine, but not a cappuccino. So, you know, it's not the kind of business that we would have thought, oh man, this is going to be a business that's going to be uh, threatened by digital right. and or a business that is going to necessarily be transformed by digital. But look at what Starbucks has done. First of all, um, the, they have been a massive leader in the order online, uh, you know, quick service space. Yes. And I just saw a statistic, and so I don't want to get it wrong, but it is a huge percentage, nearly a majority of the orders that come into most Starbucks are sent ahead from a mobile device so that the order is ready when the person arrives. Wow. That is a fundamental transformation in how their business operates. And I'll give you one other point about Starbucks that demonstrates success, which is, uh, you know, if we look in the digital payment uh, space, digital wallet mm-hmm. domain, which obviously is a fast growing uh, space in all around the world and certainly here in the U.S. where it hasn't actually was many countries in Asia, for example, were ahead of us in this space. But now it's grown rapidly here. And uh, uh, something like uh, 30 plus percent of all Americans made a digital payment with a digital wallet like Apple Pay or Google Pay or Samsung Pay or something like that right, in the okay. last year. Um, and 50 percent of uh, retailers are now accepting some form of phone based payment. So a huge growth space. So the number one uh, player in this, the largest um, digital wallet in the US, United States right now. You could probably guess who it is. Apple? Who do you think it is? Apple, yes. Apple is number one. Right. Who do you think is number two? Starbucks. Starbucks is the number two most popular, most widely used digital currency, digital That's wallet. kind of crazy, isn't it? Isn't it? 
And, and so you look at somebody like that and say, this is a pre-digital company and they're now taking that kind of leadership. And so that's how companies, I think, need to be thinking, not how do they, how do, they do well considering that they're not a digital company like Facebook and Google, yes. but rather, no, forget that. It's how do you win in a digital era no excuses. And that's what Starbucks is doing. So I find this fascinating. That is incredible, isn't it? That Starbucks is number two behind Apple. And I think I probably could have had many guesses and I would have been wrong with all of them. Now, did Starbucks actually do something which changed the customer behavior? Or was it the customer behavior that changed the way that Starbucks was acting? Or was it a bit of both? Well, I think it's a bit of both. Starbucks has been a leader. So uh, other, other quick service restaurants like McDonald's, for example, you know, yep. uh, are now uh, embracing and successfully implementing a lot of these same types of principles of how you order food for a quick service restaurant. Um, but a Starbucks, so, so, you know, when you look at something like what McDonald's are doing or, or Taco Bell, Taco Bell is another great example in this pickup space yep. because they are not only enabling you to order ahead, but they are remodeling their buildings for digital Wow! because they are taking their restaurants. If you want to call it a restaurant, whatever you call it, Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. They, <laughs> some I preferred, uh, you know, a place to get food, but, um, you know, they traditionally have, you know, the pickup window on the side of the building, your uh -huh. kind of classic fast food restaurant. And they are adding a second pickup window so that they have one window for your classic, you know, person who pulls up and yeah. makes, places their order and then they Drive have to prepare the food. And, and it, but if you order on your app and you, or you've already paid, you get a text that your food is ready. They have a different window. They don't want you waiting in that line behind the people who are thinking about whether, you know, asking once yep. again, the difference between a burrito and an enchilada. Um, they want you to just be able to get your stuff right away. So if you just think about, you know, we used to think about digital versus bricks and mortar, but here we've got Taco Bell literally, you know, busting out their bricks and mortar right? so they could add another window to their, uh, to the restaurant. So I think, you know, um, you, you know, your, your question was, is it the customers changing the, the, the businesses or vice versa? Yeah. I think the, those that are leaders, Amazon changed the way we think about commerce. Uh, a few years later, when someone like Walmart came along and managed to muscle their way up to the number two spot behind Amazon in terms of e-commerce, they were mostly being changed by their customers. You right. know, they saw what their customers wanted. They saw where their market share was at risk, but they were able to move nimbly enough to, to create a compelling alternative to Amazon. And now of course, you know, they are the number one e-commerce competitor of Amazon in the United States, another company that was a pre-digital kind of classic legacy brand, but is now absolutely a digital winner. So let's talk a little bit about some of the elements that are in your book and, and leadership in driving digital transformation. I just want to kind of get uh, some thoughts from you in relation to what does that even mean and why is it important? And we've already had some of the elements I think come out in the conversation so far. But, you know, yeah, in fact, let's start there. You know, what are some of your thoughts in relation to just why is it so important for leaders to understand how they can drive digital transformation in an environment where it's just supercharged change and it's not going to stop? Right. Well, so we've already been talking about why companies need to change. Yeah. Basically, your customers changed. And if you don't change to continue to meet the needs of your customer, you're going to become irrelevant. You're right. no longer going to be meeting their needs. You're going to be disrupted. Basic business yeah. Basic business principles. Someone is going to be doing a better job. If you say, well, this is how it's worked for all these years. Yeah. But the world has changed. And if you don't change with it, you're, you're going to become irrelevant. It's that simple. Yeah. Now, when you think about what leaders need to think about, here's the thing. Um, some things that businesses need to do are straightforward and some things are difficult. Digital transformation, unfortunately, is difficult. 
uh, it usually requires not only changes to technology, but changes to business process, changes to team, team skills, organizational structure, performance models. As we mentioned, it often requires changes to physical properties. Yep. It, may, it may require new kinds of partners, new kinds of relationships. It raises new legal and regulatory issues and considerations. It reaches into almost every aspect of business when you want to try to make these changes. And there's a fundamental kind of human psychology that most employees in any company have, not all, yep. but most employees have, which is to basically resist change. To say, you know, I'm living in a good life. You know, I'm getting my paycheck every week. Like, please don't totally disrupt my work. Yeah. And very often in order for, in order for Starbucks to change to what they were, they had to substantially change the way that the barista did their job. You know, right. there was just no, 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 no avoiding that. And if, and if your people kind of don't want that, then they can create a lot of headwinds uh, for that transformation. And I, I believe that the single biggest um, challenge, the single biggest threat to any company's desire for transformation isn't having the right vision, although that's critical, mm -hmm. isn't having the right technology, although that's critical. It is getting your people aligned and really motivated to support the transformation rather than try to hold it back, subvert it, sabotage it, et cetera. Howard, we're talking about leadership, aren't we? Well, if you want to avoid those risks or if you want to overcome them, it means you need to get win people's hearts and minds. You can't just give them instructions. And yes, how do you do that? Leadership, communication, vision, charisma, making people feel a sense of trust and confidence. It's, you know, it's like, it's like leading people on the battlefield in some ways. People yeah. are afraid. Resistance to change is just a manifestation of fear. They fear the unknown. They fear what they haven't done before. And how do you get people to do what they're afraid of? Well, you have to paint a compelling reason why it's necessary, because otherwise, why do it, right? Why take the risk? And then you have to give them the confidence that everything is going to be fine and actually better. We're going to move towards a better world. And it's hard to persuade people of that. You need to get their trust and confidence and um, continue to reinforce it. And what is all that but leadership? Yes. Now, Howard, I know this was very much the focus of your book, and I see a copy behind you. So grab your book, sir, because let's just talk about your book is winning. Are you quiz me? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. On page 37. Howard, so if you hold that, so winning digital customers, the antidote to irrelevance is very much yeah. what we're talking about. And, and in the book, you talk about many things I know, and thank you for sending me a, a digital copy. I appreciate that. You talk very much about the resistance to change and also about the, the innovation superpowers or the innovation hero. Um, yeah. First, let me ask you this. Why did you write the book in the first place? And I'm always intrigued by that because, you know, I sometimes ask myself the question, why did I write my book? How did that even happen? So what, What? because I know it's a huge effort to write a book. It really right. is. And, yeah, well, I you was going to say, I had nothing to do on a rainy Sunday <laughs> afternoon. So I, I just wrote this 400-page book. <laughs> That's not bad, is it? Because let's be honest, it's a Wall Street Journal bestseller and Forbes put it in the top 10 list of business books. So it's not a bad Sunday afternoon. But yeah. why? What, what, what prompted yeah. you to put it all down? Well, you know, I think, I think two reasons. One is, um, you know, after doing anything for several decades, yep. and in my case, it's helping large companies with transformation, you know, a, a person tends to uh, have certain observations, certain insights about what works, uh, or at least a path that works. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've been a part of a lot of very successful transformations, and that's been tremendous. I have to admit, I've been a part of some really big failures, too. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite Bill Gates quotes is, uh, success is a lousy teacher, you know. <laughs> that you is very true. That. 
So, um, you know, I, I, having, and, and this is what I do every day, of course, working with clients is leverage the experience that I have of doing this for so long to help them find the best path to success. Uh, I wanted to write a book really for two reasons, because I knew I had something to say, because I knew my team and I had kind of developed the process and approach that really worked. Yep. And based, by the way, on many other ideas that came from other places, things like agile and design thinking and important principles of organizational change that many, many other people, and I try to credit concepts from Tony Robbins, concepts from uh, Matt and Gail Taylor and many okay. others. So we certainly don't invent everything we work with, but you know, over time, over the years, uh, someone like myself assembles together. I'm sure this is true for you as well. A kind of a toolkit and approach. We discard certain things. We, we expand on certain things. We build some of our own things. And so that's really what my team at my company from the digital transformation agency really has now is our approach which has been proven to be very successful with companies like Avis and General uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and right. Airbus and Transamerica and many others, and so we wanted to write the book in part because we, you know, we can only work with a small number of companies, and uh, it just feels like a very rewarding thing to do to sort of provide to the broader universe uh, a set of principles that we know works, and because we're we're big believers in digital transformation, you know, we want to see um, the world continue to move in that direction. We want to see great brands succeed and not run into the, uh, the, the, the trenches that companies like circuit city or Toys R Us or others yeah. have, have sort of run off the road in. And, you know, to be perfectly transparent, the other reason is it's a marketing tool. Of course. Um, so what's part of your of personal brand know. part of you, isn't Absolutely. it Howard? Absolutely. You know, it's a way of letting people know. I, I sympathize with anyone who's looking to hire a company like mine. Um, it's a funny thing. I just got a call from a really good friend who wanted to hire my company. It's a, uh, someone I've worked with before in prior jobs, but he's now in a new job and he goes, I want to hire your company to come in and do this work. Yeah. And sadly we are working for their number one competitor. Oh. And I said to my friend, ah, gosh, I, I, I feel horrible, but I, I can't do it. You know? And so he said, okay, who else do you recommend? And I was like, oh man, don't ask me that. Be not because I don't want to recommend somebody, but it, all of a sudden it puts me and I'm sympathetic with this. How do you find someone who's good? You know, um, there's a lot of companies out there and many of them have good people for sure. Great people, but they also have not as great people. You know, it's like, we all have been out there hiring, hiring people and hiring companies. It's tricky. So, you know, partly I, I see this book as a tool to help any company who's trying to figure out who to work with. Uh, they can spend an afternoon or as much time as they want with me, you know, and really hear the detail of what have we done? Where have we done it? It's not a brochure. It's a step-by-step -step guide, right, right, but practical. even reading that step-by-step -step guide, tells you this is how we work, you know, not rigidly. We only ever do things one way, but this is fundamentally how we think and how we approach things. And so, um, you know, that allows someone to either say, wow, these guys sound like just who I'm looking for or say, you know, I don't like this approach. This isn't how I want to proceed. And then they know that we're not the right ones for them. So there's a couple of elements that I want to talk about in the book. And I know we're really talking about it briefly and then people can actually get the book themselves and, and dig deeper into it. As you say, it's very practical. Uh, and in, in one of the areas, obviously you're talking about the, the reasons that there is resistance to change and how you can overcome that. Uh, now, there are a number of reasons I know and an, obviously a number of mitigation strategies for it. What, do you, what is for you in your work is one of the number one reasons that people are resistant to change? What's it all about? Why are we like that? You know, I, I, one of the sources that has been very inspirational for me is the, the field of evolutionary psychology. Okay. I, I feel in many ways that all the work I do is really psychology. It's psychology to drive customers to do what we want them to do to make any business successful. 
and it's psychology to get our employees aligned with what we need them to be aligned with so that we can create an experience that is aligned with the psychology that will get our customers to do what we want it. Isn't that really what so much of business is? Mm. So evolutionary psychology looks at how our minds work in the context of how they evolved and our minds primarily evolved not in the kind of civilized world that we live in now, but in this kind of, you know, prehistoric, kind of wild, uncivilized world, right? Most of human history it, during the period that our, our psychology evolved was not in the kind of world we live in now. Right. And so if you think back, and, and I'm no, you know, archaeologist or whatever, but if you think back even to the cliche of a life of a caveman or whatnot, because they had the same DNA that we do, basically, um, you know, if you got a cave that protected you from the elements, you know, a way of fending off uh, wild animals, you basically had figured out a way to survive. And someone said, hey, I have an idea. Let's give up this safe cave. Let's go 25 miles through the jungle and see if maybe there's someplace even better, you know, and on the way, yeah, there'll be leopards and lions and probably all kinds of animals trying to kill us. But, you know, maybe there'll be something better if we go through all that. It would be perfectly reasonable to go, Nah. And, um, you know, <laughs> Thanks, I, I think but I'm no. Stick. Yeah, the cave is a little drafty. It's true, you know, and, and all we eat is raw squirrels. But you know, we're alive, you know. So I think I think there's this natural human tendency to say, you know what? If I'm surviving, maybe I shouldn't mess with my formula for success. Okay. And then, thank God, there's some subset of people that are born with maybe a little different DNA, a little genetic mutation, where they say, "To hell with it." Why I'm going to go through the jungle. I'm going to give up my, my safety and I'm going to go for something new. And these tend to be people who have personalities that are innovators, people that are trailblazers, right? This is your Elon Musk. This is your Jeff Bezos. This is your Steve Jobs and many more people who aren't famous at all, but work yes. at companies who are like, no, no guys, we need to go to this new territory. And a, a, a problem that those people can have, and cause that's really who I speak to most of the time, right? That's who I want to read this book. I mean, yep. Anyone is welcome to it, but because the problem that those people often have is that they are enthusiastic about change, but they forget that just because it gets them excited doesn't mean it's going to get everyone excited. So and the same story that they lay out, hey, I have an exciting idea. Let's leave the cave. Let's go through the jungle. Who's Let's with me? The lions. Doesn't that sound great? Right. Most people are going to be like, no, dude, that sounds horrible. And they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Well, that's because they're in the minority in terms of this sort of psychographic profile. And so sometimes you see startups that are composed entirely of people like this. You get 15 people together who are all disruptors, all innovators, all trailblazers, and they create a company that threatens a multi-billion dollar corporation because that's the power of people who are willing to innovate. Right. But if you're looking at a large company, there's no way you're going to get a company with 100,000 people like that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's not practical, especially when you're a pre-existing organization. So instead, you need to figure out how do we overcome this? potentially genetic psychology tendency that is there for all kinds of historically good reasons, logical reasons to keep people alive. And after all, if you talk about messing with someone's work, you're talking about their livelihood. Yeah. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that that genetic programming, which is from a period that isn't like the world today is actually operating contrary, the opposite. It's sort of this irony, which is that the resistance to change is often the most risky thing a company can do during the period of change like we're in now. It's yeah, like challenge. if your cave is fill, filling up with water and pretty soon you're going to be underwater and drown and you say, eh, I'm going to stay in this cave because it's been safe for the last 20 years. It's like, no, you are about to die, dude. Now we go through the jungle. Now it's not a question of doesn't that sound cool because we can't stay in this cave that no, we've been in. 
Yeah. And that's what leaders in this space need to need to help those other, say, 85 percent of people understand, which is that, it, yes, it is a must and help them overcome that fear of change that they naturally have and reasonably have. And we need to sympathize in with that fear of change, but again, help them overcome it so that the company can be successful. I love that as a description, Howard, I really do. Uh, and as we talk about in leaders and leadership, and so many leaders talk about the difficulty of trying to lead and manage change. And as you say, if you're working with a large global organization, how are you going to pull all these people uh, along with you, you know, and having a vision, I suppose, is certainly <laughs> will help. You also talk about something which, which resonated with me, and that was about the innovation hero, because you talk about superpowers. And now you're really talking about some innate human-centered leadership capabilities that, yeah. in your book, you talk about are absolutely essential for someone to be an innovation hero. And again, we hear the term innovation in many organizations. I've heard organizations say that the lack of human proximity uh, over the last couple of years has... Uh, in some ways dented their ability to be innovative. But tell me a little bit about your thoughts about this innovation hero and the superpowers that, that a leader needs in order to be that hero. Yeah, well, you know, it's, this phrase came about because at one point in my own company, we were doing like a persona exercise to say, who's our ideal customer? Right. And we kind of created this vision of this person who's really trying to drive their organization to the future. And we labeled that person the innovation hero. And we said, this is really who we're looking for. So if there are any, any innovation heroes out there listening, I'd love to talk to you. But that's this is what who we first and foremost look to have as, as our clients, the people who are trying to do that, the innovation heroes. When we wrote the book, then we tried to do something that was just a little bit fun that we do late in the book, which is we say, you know, we're mindful of the fact that when we describe what you have to be able to do to lead companies to transformation. It can sound really daunting. It can sound like, are there any other jobs I could get? Because this one sounds like you're setting me up for failure. You know, I have to somehow convince all these people to do something that they don't want to do it. You know, so just for fun, you know, so the point is it, it almost sounds like you're looking for Superman. You're looking for Wonder Woman. You know, you're looking for somebody who has these powers beyond what a normal person would be able to do. So just for fun in the book, we, we broke down kind of common superhero characteristics and we pointed out how they apply to this. So just as an example, we talk about super speed. We all know, and you, you made the point earlier that, you know, sometimes, you know, it's more important to be fast than to be right. And those that, those that win yeah. are those that are fast, not necessarily big. So, you know, the speed with which you have to be able to drive change in order to be successful today can feel superhuman. Um, another is, you know, we talk about supervision. Because yeah, I was going to ask about that one. Successful at this, you have yeah, you have to be able to both. Let me just pause the there because when we say when we say supervision, yeah. it's super vision, yeah. two words, not supervision, right? right? So <laughs> as the listeners are listening to this, Ooh, two, I that's just interesting. I know. So it's two words. It's super vision. So I wanted to ask you about that one. So yeah, tell uh, us about it. There's a blog post in that somewhere. That is it supervision or is it supervision? Vision. Like yeah. yeah. It is in this case. It is super. Vision, like Superman has, right? In a, in, in a practical sense, you really do have to have vision to be a, a, a leader, a digital leader. You have to be able to see the big picture, the long-term uh, vision that you're trying to drive your company toward over the next number of years and the things that are changing in the world. And at the same time, you have to be able to see very short-term things. You have to be able to figure out, how am I going to create short-term value so that I don't get my budget pulled, you know, Pulls. so that people don't declare my project a failure. We can't only spend money this year for stuff that's going to be a return three years from now. No company can afford to do that. Um, so there's there's that need to see both the near and the far. So we, you know, sort of jokingly refer to that as, you know, and supervision. And um, I mentioned one more, but I think we talk about eight or nine in the book. 
Um, this idea of speaks all languages, you know, the superhero that can communicate with the fish and can communicate with animals and communicate yeah. with anybody, no matter what language. And I think digital leaders really need that as well. And not just from a global perspective, but you know, you have to be able to speak the language of technology and really speak to technology people and figure out what they can do. And then you need to be able to speak the language of hardcore business and think about, you know, EBITDA and, you know, return on investment and those types of things in order to get funding. And no doubt you need to be able to speak the language of marketing and think about, you know, how you're going to drive, drive traffic. And, and because digital touches so many aspects, you need to be able to speak the language of legal because yeah. so often, you know, things we want to do in digital, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, what about CCPA? What about uh, can spam? What about, uh, you know, Uber yeah. wants to create a digital, you know, ability to call a car, but what about the local taxi and limousine commission laws in every city in the country? So anyway, the point is, Again, it's why the, this leaders, these leadership roles almost seem like they require someone superhuman. You have to have all of these skills or figure out how to get it done, have build a team with all these capabilities, et cetera. Okay, now I've got the list in front of me and anyone who wants to know the list, <laughs> check out the book. But I want to ask you about one other because you've got allies with other superheroes. Tell me a little bit about that because I, I, I want to talk about the importance of not having to do it all by yourself. So talk about allies yeah. with other superheroes. Right, yeah. So yeah, I mean as as much money has been made over the years from superhero movies the ones that have made the most have been these um end game movies right the marvel films where they bring all the superheroes together um that's the thing that is the most inspiring to people right more than just seeing an iron man movie or a spider-man movie and in order to make digital successful, it can never be one person who does everything. Yeah. I mean, and we're sort of joking when we talk about the superhero, um, even though the leader themselves, the top leader does need a wide range of skills, but in reality, success is achieved by assembling a team, each of whom needs to be a kind of a superhero. And just like the superheroes, like when you see, you know, the super friends or the, the Avengers, where each one of them has a, has a unique skill, right? They're, you know, Wolverine's claws come out of his fingers and another one can turn invisible and another one can whatever. Uh, and so similarly, you need one person who's like your technology superhero and they really understand that in depth. Gotcha. And another person who may be your, you know, monetization superhero and a marketing and traffic generation super. So you need these people who are awesome in their individual areas, just like, you know, Wonder Woman has skills that Superman doesn't have, et cetera. And then they all need to share though, some of these more common things like the ability to drive speed and speak multiple languages and some of the other things that we mentioned earlier. So you need people who are at heart superheroes and who also have the kind of specialization that of course we see in, I was about to say real superheroes, but maybe that's not the right word. <laughs> well, yeah, we can all decide on or who are real super, real superheroes. Um, I know we're just scraping the surface, really touching upon some of these important aspects of, of really those leadership capabilities, which are essential for, as you say, winning customers in a world that is incredibly digital and it's just going to continue to be incredibly digital. How can people get in touch with you, Howard? How can they connect, continue the conversation, find out more, get you to help them? How? Sure. Well, I'm going to give you three quick ways. First of all, Thank I'm you. very active on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, subscribe to my LinkedIn newsletter under my name, Howard Tierski. Uh, second of all, if you're interested in the book, uh, you can find it anywhere where you buy books, basically Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a website for the book at winningdigitalcustomers.com. Right. If you'd like to go there, you can download the first chapter for free. Ah, excellent. And and lastly, um, uh, if you're interested in learning more about my consulting company uh, called From the Digital Transformation Agency, you can find us at from.digital. 
Well, there we go. Three easy ways to connect with you. So I'm grateful to you. Um, last question for you, Howard. I, I really enjoyed this episode. What would be the most powerful piece of leadership advice that you've given or received that is really front of mind for you at the moment? Most powerful? You know, I, I think it's empathy. I think that, you know, you mentioned a Tony Robbins quote in your intro about success leaving clues. Yeah. And I think that I'll give you another Tony Robbins quote, which is if you want to influence people, you have to understand what influences them. And that goes for customers and it goes for employees. And so I think those that are really successful are genuinely curious about their customers, yeah. genuinely curious about their employees. And it can be hard to cultivate that because sometimes we have beliefs and things, the ways we want to see the world and things we want to think our employees care about or our customers care about. And if we hold on too tightly to those, we stop paying attention and we stop being curious about what's really going on. And frankly, as we talked about at the beginning, people have changed so much in the last two years that oh, yeah. even the things you may have been right about in the past in terms of your insights about what your customers and your employees care about, they may very well have shifted. And so I think that basic idea, empathy and curiosity about understanding the human beings whose behavior are core to your business is not something you can delegate. Not to say that the people on, uh, you know, that work for you and with you shouldn't also do it, but you need to personally do it whether that's listening into call center calls or interviewing customers yeah. or spending time mystery shopping or just talking to you know customers in your stores or you know whatever your business is but that I think if I had to pick one thing would be the one that stands out in my mind right now. Good to hear. And certainly empathy and curiosity are very much I I've kind of working on the seven components of human centered leadership and empathy and curiosity are both in there so that's a, a wonderful way to end this episode listen howard you've been a great guest I, I hope you've enjoyed this thank you so much for coming on to the leadership enigma yeah likewise thanks to adam thanks for having stay me. in touch my friend join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the leadership enigma we'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests get in touch with your host on linkedin or our youtube channel and remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org. Download the Insights app and start learning for free. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.